welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I have a gentleman in the guest chair today. He describes himself as a contrarian. (laughs) He chuckled at that term. Um, He he calls himself a, a contrarian, a term for which there's several applications. Miles has no job. He's a multimillionaire. He lives in multiple countries, and he pursues opportunities, projects, and passion throughout the globe. He'll tell us more, I'm sure. But Miles Wakeham, welcome to the Two Boomer Women podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, let's start with your term contrarian. How do you describe contrarian as it, oppo- as it affects you or refers to you? Um, and how do you live your life as a contrarian? Uh, well, I guess it's a timing issue. It's funny. I, I never thought of myself as being all that atypical or different, but I'm from Australia originally. And I guess that starts the whole process off. And, and, and the other part, and I'm sure your listeners will appreciate it is that, uh, I'm in my late fifties. So I grew up at a time when there were no rules. Uh, we were what we called free range kids in Australia. Um, you were taught to grow up, ride your bicycle, hang out with your neighbors. I was lucky enough to live next to a big uh, kind of national park. And so all of my adventures as a kid was exploring, looking for caves and looking for following the creek and, you know, trying not to get bitten by snakes and scorpions and spiders that would kill you and and riding go-karts and all that stuff. I mean, it kind of sounds idyllic, but that was normal and it was normal for me and all my friends. It's how we grew up. And so when I eventually came to the United States, when I was about 25, um, it wasn't normal here. None of that, that, that stuff looked like it was in a 1950s movie, but in 1989, when I first arrived in the States, that was not normal. I remember talking about being a fish out of water. Uh, I was into, I used to run uh, like jogging. I used to do like five kilometers every day. It was my standard practice back then. I was way fitter (laughs) back then. Um, And I was living in Los Angeles unexpectedly. And so what did I do at seven in the morning every day? I got out of my, you know, the apartment I was staying at with my soon to be wife and went running through the San Fernando Valley. And everyone looked at me like, are you nuts? You're going to get killed and mugged and knifed and shot and, I'm like, no, the only thing that really bothered me here was the air quality was really bad because of the pollution from the cars. But other than that, it's like, uh, I'm sorry, I don't share in your insecurity with this. I don't share in your fear. 
I would just go out and run. And so I did that every single day. And eventually the air quality stopped me. It wasn't some idiot with a knife or a gun or whatever. It was like, but what, what I noticed was that the way I thought was so different because everybody here, it started putting questions in my mind as I, you know, entered the workforce, became part of society and, and joined the Americana experience. I, I started realizing I don't think like you guys at all. And the expectations that had were on society here were so different to where I grew up. I look like, I'll give you an example. I, I'm a, I made my career, I guess you call it my money in technology, software development, particularly. I bought one of the very, very first ever personal computers that was ever, ever came out in 1977 as a kid in my bedroom. And I made a career out of it, made a lot of money out of it. Um, I was kind of like the mini Bill Gates in, in my country. Um, there was no school. There was no universities teaching you that because it had just been invented. So I convinced my father to let me finish, uh, let me leave high school before I graduated. I never went to college. I didn't do any of that. By the age of 25, I'd written software for hundreds of different organizations, including the Department of Defense. I wrote the software that managed the billing of a $5 billion submarine project. Um, I wrote software that ran cryogenic freezer storage labs. I wrote software for the Attorney General's Department in my state. Um, Fortune 500 corporations, big transport companies, sort of the, back in those days, the equivalent of like FedEx, were using my software to run their, their cart notes, their shipping, shipping documentation. And I thought this was normal, right? I thought that I just work hard and I, I love what I do. And so I do it. And these guys are giving me a chance to do it. And I get to experience all these different parts of the world. I thought that was normal. I come to the United States I'm sitting in some HR department in McDonnell Douglas or some company like that, which I would be a perfect fit for, only to be told you can't work here, you don't have a degree, you don't have you don't have the paper. I'm like, are you serious? I went through this twenty times over. It got so frustrating. Um, I eventually ended up in some mobile trailer on a on a construction site in the middle of Thousand Oaks, California. Um, at this startup that had some stupid idea for some medical invention. And I'm looking at them going, they're just going to say no, because I don't have a degree. And they're on the other side, they're just looking at me going, he's just going to say no, because we're in this trailer, you know. And I eventually said, well, if you guys are so dysfunctional and I'm so dysfunctional, then we should work together. So I took a job. That company became Amgen, the world's largest biotechnology corporation. And when they gave you a job back then, they gave you stock options, lots of them. So when I was 32, I walked away a millionaire. Um, that's how my life is. It's like that, there's a whole stories and chapters of adventures that go on from that, but that represents the modus operandi of Miles. That's how I work. I don't subscribe to the social mantra. I don't fit in, right? And it's not that I, I, I it's not because I don't want to. I'm a, I have wonderful friends here and great, you know, experiences in the United States, but I'm the contrarian. I don't fit in. And here's the weirdest thing about that. Go fast forward 30 years later. Now we're in 2022. 
it seems like everywhere you look on the TV, the world's coming to an end. Everyone's losing their life savings. This guy wants a civil war. That guy's threatening the, you know, it's like, it goes on and on. You get sick of it after a while. But you look at the whole thing and go, is this where you end up when you follow the rules? Is this what you want at the end? Is this what your social mantra gives you? I mean, I'd put my daughter through college thinking it was the right thing to do. It was absolutely not. I mean, I, I, I feel for parents that have an 18-year-old kid and they're sitting at the kitchen table and the kid is not even old enough to buy a beer in most bars and they put this multi-page debt contract for hundreds of thousands of dollars in front of them for this student loan thing and the parents are sitting there going, I don't know what to do, but I, you know, I've got to give them safe haven because that's my job. And maybe going to college is your entry ticket to the middle class kids. So sign your life away on this contract and you'll be just great. And you and I know that doesn't work out, right? Yeah. And I think there's a certain amount now where those young people are refusing to sign their life away on an education contract, refusing to sign their life away on a mortgage, um, all that thing, whereas I have 10 years on you. So I grew up similar to you uh, in a little tiny town that when we first moved there, when I was five, there wasn't even a road in. Um, So it was great. You know, we lived in the woods and it was just so much fun. You watched out for bears and cougars and whatever. But I brought my children up in the 80s in a city. And yeah, there was that complete dichotomy of, of growing up versus the eighties. You know, you know it, it it makes my heart feel good hearing other people who went through this because I always thought that I was the odd one out, right? Um, and yet, no, I start realizing that maybe it's generational, maybe it's just different, but there's just sort of this lack of pragmatic reality and embracement of real things because. People have been, as you rightly say, you know, living in that urban sprawl and the you know fake plastic trees and concrete jungle. It, you don't get close to reality, and our universe is all about reality. And the closer we are to understanding it, the more likely we'll succeed in it. Yeah, I think we notice it in Canada because of the same bill of goods. I think that we were all sold that you know you, you move to the city, you make your money, whatever, uh, you join that railroad to train the track to, to wherever. And, and in Canada, of course, that leaves us in this little swath just north of the American border. And, uh, yeah, and there's a whole big wide world out there that's just waiting to uh, be explored and re- parts, parts of it resettled. I'd hate to, to taint it, I guess, by uh, sending too many people there. But um, more and more I hear and see people that are just saying, no, done. And I think COVID had something to do with that, where I don't have to be in the office. So where do I want to live? What sort of a lifestyle do I want to have? Um, and when you can work remotely, perhaps you can. Yeah. Yeah. It's, no, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. One of the things my wife and I, my wife's from Australia as well, and yeah. we came with similar experiences. Hers even worse than mine. <laughs> I don't know if worse is the right word, but more extreme than mine. Like her father was a, uh, he worked for the Department of Education in Australia as a, uh, originally a school teacher and then eventually a principal. And then after he kind of did that, he wanted to work. Uh, they basically said, would you like to work for sort of head office, if you like, uh, and, you know, build schools? And he said, yeah, wow, that'd be an adventure. Okay, well, we've got a job for you. 
in Papua New Guinea. He's <laughs> like, what, with the tribes that killed the cannibals? Yeah, up in the highlands, you're going to build schools up there. Okay, so he took the whole family, including my wife, into Papua New Guinea. And for three or four years, that's where she grew up, in with the natives, in the mud, with the pigs, and, you know, the whole bit. She learned pidgin English as well as regular, and then she became befriended with the tribe. And uh, so when she, when I met her, she had been, she was in Germany for three years on a, a backpacking trip. And then we ended up meeting back in Australia. And the funny thing is that her experiences sort of, I could understand them, you know. Um, life, this planet is such a beautiful place. It's such a wonderful adventure and so much of and the thing that was really difficult for me was coming to the united states i felt like i was shielding myself from what the rest of the planet had to offer and it wasn't that i i didn't want to listen to those scary talk stories about you know things i wanted to i was the contrarian right i mean here's the irony is in the last five years we discovered Traveling in central Mexico, uh, we spent a lot of time in Mexico and um, we ended up buying a huge acreage uh, in San Miguel de Allende, which is in the center of Mexico in the highlands. And we're building a massive uh, home. And I'm also filling, uh, uh, completing the end of a circle uh, of a story that I began when I first landed in Los Angeles, um, which is I guess kind of a segue, I mean, but an important part of, of our journey and probably something that your audience may be interested in. When I first came to the United States, I, as an immigrant, uh, the U.S. immigration system is a mess. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me leave because I got married and that would, because I started the process in the States, I couldn't leave until it was finished. It's a multi-year ordeal. And I couldn't work for the first six months of that because they had to process a work permit. It's like a temporary thing on your way to getting a green card. So I was sort of stuck in limbo. I was living in uh, in uh, Los Angeles with uh, no work. Well, when I was a kid, one of the things my mother did when I was about five years old, she shoved a violin under my chin and said, kid, you're going to be playing in the symphony orchestra by the time you're 12. And she was right. And by 11, I was playing in the Junior Symphony Orchestra in my state. And so I was raised as a musician and I basically skated through school on that because it was something I could do. And I picked up the guitar when I was about 12 because you can't get girls with a violin. <laughs> so I thought I was going to be, you know, Pete Townsend or something. So I ended up becoming, you know, a musician, a guitarist and learned classical guitar and so on. When I came to LA and I couldn't work, my natural inclination was to go hang out at all the music stores in Hollywood because it was pretty close to where we were. So I did that, ended up for, you know, joining a bunch of idiots and forming a band and we became semi-successful in LA, played up and down the Sunset Strip, met all these interesting record label executives and producers and all those people in the business. Um, and then when my band split up, I'd been, I got work by then, but when my band split up, I ended up finding that my technical skills led me into recording studios, but on the other side of the glass, I started to uh, learn the art of recording. And I uh, was trained by some 
unbelievably talented producers and engineers uh, back in the day, you know, guys who were behind like Tears for Fears and those sort of level projects, like really high end. And I didn't realize the gift I was being given by hanging with these guys because I just thought, are they just idiots like me? Most of them are British, but they're just idiots like me and they're teaching me something I don't know that I'm really interested in. So I learned that. And then that began this kind of, the weird thing about recording industries is typically done at night because musicians don't get up in the daytime. Uh, so I could have a day job and then leave and go and work in the studio business. And although, you know, that was a, like having two jobs, I didn't mind because it wasn't really a job. And I went into these studios and I ended up in these places that became kind of legendary and epic studios. And I ended up getting work from, <laughs> if you could ever see these places, they were like dumps, absolute mess. The guy who ran it was usually this drunk chain smoking guy in the office upstairs and, you know, didn't know how any of the gear worked, but he got this real estate and somehow he thought, you know, he can make a go of it. And he'd find idiots like me who work for next to nothing. And he'd go, kid, do you want a job here as the house engineer? And I'd say, yeah, sure. And you get to play with this vintage historical recording equipment and toys from the sixties and the seventies. And it was like a kid in a candy store for me. So I did that and I recorded some really, really big name uh, acts and uh, I got this sort of side gig with Capitol Records and I was doing a lot of that work. And um, I was about to record this new band from Seattle that I was scheduled to do this album with. And uh, then I got a phone call from Australia. My mum had a car accident. I had to go back there and take care of her. And basically, I didn't really return for about five or six years. She eventually passed away, unfortunately. But um, I did my duty as the son and came back to America with you know my family and realized that in 1999, when I got back, the world was different. And I couldn't go back into that world of studio recording because I now had a daughter and I had to become the responsible parent. Um, anyway, long story short, 20 years later, I'm in Guadalajara in Mexico. I decided to get some pretty major shoulder surgery done. I did it there. And I'm recovering in this Airbnb. And I've got nothing to do, so I'm flipping it through YouTube, you know, watching YouTube videos. And I stumble upon a few of the old videos from people in the recording business, which, you know, I'm still very passionate about. And uh, there, lo and behold, is an interview with the guy who engineered and recorded at the very same studio that I was working at. And I looked at the timeline of what he was talking about. I'm like, oh, that you took over from me. When I left, you're the guy who took over. Oh, cool. So what did you do? And he's talking about the first project he had was this band from Seattle. I'm like, oh, yeah, who's that? The Foo Fighters. I'm like, oh, my God. Are you serious? And the next thing you know, I realized I could have been that guy. I could have, that could have been my life. And it should have been my life because I was passionate about it. But no, I had to take the easy road, become a software developer. So 20 well, years did you, did you, I, I'll challenge the easy life, excuse me, insofar as, you know, you had to go home and take care of your mom too, by the sounds of it. Yeah, well, um, that's your duty, right? You know, you do, you got to do what you got to do. Family is the most important thing. It always is for us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I gravitate to places that respect that um but yeah i mean it's just you know you do what you got to do anyway i here's the thing 20 years later i you know i've i've raised my kid 
I've had my life. I've, I've made my money. I paid my house off. I, you know, I don't want for anything. What now? I'm 57. What am I going to do now? I'm not ready to give up. I'm just, I, I don't work because I don't have anything to, I, I don't consider it a labor. It's, it's a passion. And so I never want to stop doing what I do. But there's this missing gap in my life where I never finished my production work, my engineering work. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to build a recording studio. I'm going to build one of the world's biggest recording studios. I'm going to go, go big or go home on this one. So I bought an acre of land in Mexico, put 30-foot walls around it like a compound, and started building what will be probably one of the world's highest-grade, high-class recording studios, which will go, li- go online next year. And that adventure has led me down into the Caribbean. Uh, I followed the, in, the, in the footsteps of Sir George Martin, the producer from The Beatles. I've been working with all the guys who he used to work with in Montserrat, who built Air Studios Montserrat, which is where all the albums like Dire Straits work came from, where all the police's last two albums were, where the Rolling Stones reformed, where Elton John reformed and did his work where Queen did their work, where Rush did their work, and so on and so on. And I ended up befriending all the guys who used to work there back in the 80s, hired them, and they're building my studio in Mexico. So we're – and then going all around the world looking for vintage equipment, I just came back from – in February, I came back from New York having acquired a a vintage Neve recording console, which there are about five of them in the world, shipped it in a crate to San Miguel, which was – a massive logistical exercise, but it's all coming together. And it's weird because in the end, I'm going to finish doing what I plan to do, you know, and that's life, right? Have adventures. Yeah. And, and, you know, on your website, you talk about being constrained and, and I've heard you speak about being constrained, but what it sounds like to me is you're only constrained if you're, playing to someone else's or dancing to someone else's tune mm-hmm. whereas it, you can be run off your feet you can be busier than all get out but if it's a passion project if you're loving what you're doing then you're not constrained yeah and here's the weird thing is that uh, to further underscore what you're saying um most of our society is constrained um, if you look at statistics, Forbes magazine published, I think, in 2019, 2018, 2019, the 78% of people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck. So there's more month than there is money. And when you're in that world, you're constrained. You, you have no choice. You can't take time off from work to go and do something. God forbid you get sick, you can't even take time off to go to the hospital. Um Travel? Give me a break. My daughter just got a job at some corporation here. They give her a whopping five days a year of, of holiday time, of vacation. Is yeah, that legal? Yeah, apparently wow. it is. And apparently that's normal these days, you know. There's no four weeks or six weeks or, you know, what you would normally get if you were in Europe or Australia, probably, I'm sure probably Canada as well. Um, but no, five days. Um, and it, it's sick. It's really sick. It's slavery. And you look at it going, well, then why do you put up with it? Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, that's all I got. You know, I'm a naturalized American citizen. I can't go anywhere else. I don't have immigration. I'm like, rubbish. I did. Change your country. 
change your dynamic, change your, change the world around you, change your domain, be, go where you're treated best, seriously. Um, and then you look at the biggest uh, bankruptcy cause in the United States, I think 65% of all bankruptcies come from medical bankruptcy. So unlike in Australia and in Canada, where you're not going to die if you get sick, right? You can go to hospital and get an operation. It's not going to financially destroy you. That's not the case here. In the case that they've, they've, co they've cobbled together your right to healthcare with a bank and their right to profits, and they do not work. It's oil and water, and it doesn't work like that. And the thing is that people put up with it because we – and they justify it. That's what I don't get. They justify it in their mind. They think, oh, I'm, I'm a – and they pick your political party of choice, right? I'm on the side of, you know, everything that's against my best interest. What? <laughs> what? What? Are you serious? I mean, yeah, okay, you have the rights to this and the rights to that, but ultimately it's irrelevant. Your right to free speech ain't going to fix your cancer, okay? I mean, it's like I want to pick up people and shake them sometimes because it's like when did you put yourself second to ideology? When did you become a part of a cult? Well, and, and one of the tags, one of the tags on your profile was medical tourism. Can you just explain that for our listeners, please? Yeah, um, I had a massive car accident in the middle of mid-90s and it left me with uh, a shoulder that was poorly reconstructed and unfortunately due to a really weird series of events, I couldn't get ongoing re rehabilitation or uh, physio, physio on my shoulder and it ended up deforming into this mess that uh, eventually I got uh, uh, a, a tumour in there, basically. It was benign, so it wasn't a... Uh, going to be life-threatening, but it was something where I had to get it fixed. And um, I, when I came to the United States, it was considered what, what my insurance company here would call a pre-existing condition. So I could not get insurance coverage for it. So whatever it was going to cost, I had to pay cash for it. So I started shopping around to get the thing fixed. And it was getting worse every single day. I mean, it was painful. I'd wake up in the morning. It was just just horrible. So uh, I ended up talking to a friend of mine who's a physician in, in um, Los Angeles, and he had said to me, uh, I'll, I'll put you in contact with an, uh, an orthopedic surgeon in UCLA, and you guys can – and so he looked it over and came back to me and he said, well, I can't guarantee you what the actual cost is, but you should be budgeting about $150,000 for this. And I'm like, are you serious? Um what are you going to do? He said, well, it's a shoulder replacement, you know, prosthetic and clean it up, fix it up, and then you'll do physio after that and rehabilitation and you'll get most of the use of your shoulder back. And I thought, well, it's um, a lot of money. I, I, but, you know, health is more important to me than money. I guess I can find a way. But I happened to be in Mexico on one of our trips down there and I was having – Mescal with some friends of mine in San Miguel and I met this guy as a doctor and he was from India, but he was in from he, his residency was in New York and we were talking about it. He said to me, yeah, medical system in the States is going to kill you. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, the number of uh, errors and omissions and the stress levels going on in the hospitals. He says, I'd never get work done there, if, you know, at all. And I said, yeah, and the cost. And I told him what I was quoting. He goes, are you serious? He says, no. Here's what you do. You go to either a big city in Mexico, pick one of three. You can go to Mexico City, you can go to Guadalajara, you can go to Monterey, 
and you find the physician there, they're all trained in Europe or the States for the most part, but they have the best medical system you'll find. So I did that. I got in a bus and went to Guadalajara, saw a physician. And to give you kind of an example, in the States, if you get an MRI, depending on what state you're in, it can cost you about $4,000, depending on the licensing of the state, but think 4000 280 bucks down in Guadalajara. <laughs> same equipment, same technicians, same process. That's your price difference. So I'm like, I said to the doctor when he was in there, I said, well, give me a quote for all this work. And so he gives me a quote and it was this massive number. And I'm like, oh, you're no different than California. And he goes, no, no, no I'm, I'm quoting you in pesos. Oh, what is that in US dollar? Gets his calculator out. 9,000 bucks. I'm like, are you serious? 9,000 bucks for a $150,000 operation in California? Doctor, book me in right now. So we did it, got it done. Best medical experience I've ever had in my life. So I, I have been telling people since I came back, not that, you know, it's not my job to tell people what they should do with their life, but at least I can open a door and say, look, if you're saying to people, you're making every damn excuse for why you can't get a hip replacement done, which, by the way, is about five grand down there, by the way. Um, but you can't get your hip fixed and you're walking around in pain all the time or you've, you've got a bad back or you've got a bad shoulder or you've got a bad knee or whatever it is, um, no excuse. The cost of my entire surgery was less than my copay would have been in the States. So there's no excuse. And that also goes for optical, dental, and pharmaceuticals because uh, my wife got what was quoted to her of about $25,000 of dental work done in a town on the border with Arizona called Los Algodones for a total cost of $4,200. So I wanted you to go there because I have a friend in the Dominican. She's a Canadian woman, moved down there a number of years ago. And when we talk, we do talk about some of the discrepancies. Now, what it costs her to have, you know, whether it's anything from a, a, a haircut to dental work to like a root canal, like whatever, a fraction of, of what I would pay up here. Um, and our big thing up here is, sure, the government may pay for a whole bunch of stuff, not dental, but you have to wait how many years? You could be dead before you, you get the fix. So we're on a bit of a, a rampage about encourage seniors to go to some of these other countries mm -hmm. and you can live for a fraction of the price because lord knows they don't pay us enough on our pensions to live here so mm -hmm. yeah it's one of my soapboxes and and that's why i was wanted to ask you about that too just because it's yeah it's it's a big one it's it's huge um i don't know what the numbers are in canada but we have these really shocking statistics in the u.s um life expectancy is the worst uh so let me, let me give you some facts and truth that doesn't get spoken about much. Um, I can go with U.S. male life expectancy because I know the numbers. U.S. female is the same number plus about two and a half years on average. Now, our lovely little CDC, the Center of Disease Control in the U.S., who are the guys behind COVID and you know, Anthony Fauci and all that stuff. They're quite prominent. Well, for many years prior, every year they would produce a statistic on the average US life expectancy. And what we had seen is these numbers, we were being told by the government here, particularly in regards to things like social security and pensions and so on, that 
people were living longer and they were having a better quality of life because of technology and our advancements as a species and evolution and all that. Um, but our very same government, the CDC, were telling us the polar opposite. We have seen a decline in life expectancy at massive levels. Since 2016, life expectancy for an average US male was 79.5 years. And as of 2020, it went to 75.3. We dropped an average of five years of life expectancy in five years. And I went back and I looked at these numbers because they didn't make sense to me. My driving force was how much money do I need to be able to live in the final chapter of my life, the final quarter of my life without losing it all and running out of money before I run out of years? Because I don't want to run out of years, but I'm a biological entity. It's inevitable I will. But the reality is I don't want to run out of money either because I need to be able to make sure that my, myself, my wife, my kids have you know financial security. So what are the numbers here? Well, they've been trying to raise the Social Security eligibility age to 67 here. Right now you can take it at 62, but it's a fraction of what you would get. And they're looking at the, the baseline numbers they're looking at at 65. So I looked at this and said, government, you're running out of money. You're telling us we should retire at 67. And another branch of the very same government is telling us we're going to live for eight years after that. Huh? Eight years, you work all your life, save all your money, and you get eight years. That's it? That's what you're telling me? Yeah. Why is it nobody else's? And why is it that if I go to the homepage of the U.S. Social Security Agency, I did this a week ago, it says on there, oh, Americans are living longer and having a better quality of life. It's like bullshit. <laughs> Let's call bullshit on that because that is completely not true, and you're telling us this story because you don't want to run out of money. You're lying to your people. And it's part of this connecting the dots of why people call me a contrarian. I'm not a contrarian. I'm a realist, right? At some point, I look and go, if you do what the government and, and tax authority and, you know, what social mantras are, you do those things, you will die. And you will live a low-quality, low-grade, short life without any money, period. If you want to do that, then just keep doing the same, Right? If you want to change it, the earlier you can do it, the better. But look to places where you're treated best. One of the things that I discovered in Mexico is a very, very easy immigration process. It costs $40 to get a permanent residency visa there. $40. I'm listening to all these guys on these like nomad capitalists and all these guys who are telling you, I'll go move to the Dominican Republic or St. Kitts or, or Malta or Portugal or whatever. We'll set you up and it will only cost you 500,000 euro. What? <laughs> I need that money to live on. Come on, give me a break. But 40 bucks to go to Mexico with a permanent residency visa. We did it. You know, I'm a permanent resident of Mexico. Um, it was a bit of process, but not too bad. I mean, I went to the consulate here in Phoenix, did a sit down, showed them some bank statements, showed them my passport. And then they told me, okay, here you go, go to Mexico, ratify this thing. You got six months to do it. I did that. I got an attorney. She took care of everything and we're done. And I got my green card. So I'm good. But why do, and then why do I do that? Well, because I can live like a king down there for 1500 bucks a month. Um, best food. They don't have GMOs down there. Everything's farm to table. I mean, the best quality of life, the best health care that's affordable. 
And if and now with this little permanent residency card, you get free public health care in Mexico. Now, you might not want it to get, you know, your exclusive operation done, but you can afford to pay for private for that. But what you can get out of it is free pharmaceuticals because they give it to you because you've got an IMSS number. Hello? Um, I don't get it. This stuff is right on our doorstep. People can just walk in there and what what happens? Everything in the United States, I, I can't speak for Canada, but everything in the United States, you, you go to any of the mainstream media, the first thing they'll tell you is, oh, you'll go down there, you'll get beheaded. The drug cartels will kill you and rob you and whatever. It's like, I'm sorry, I live on a border region. I live in Arizona. I cross that border all the time. This is not true. I know exactly. I'm not saying it never happens, but I get, I'm get. i more worried about some 18-year-old kid with an AR-15 going into a public school shooting the place up here than I'm worried about driving down the I-15 in Sonora any day. Um, and as you get into central Mexico, into the expat regions like San Miguel, where we are, uh, all you find is people who have who've embraced the concept of la familia, the family. You're part of an extended family down there. You're, there's a role for you. You fit in. You don't give up on life. Your life begins again. Your role may be in NGOs or charity. Uh, in my case, it'll be in art. I can um, embrace the culture of Latin music and capture it like a like a scribe, like a photographer to their music and give them a chance of learning the art of recording that I was taught that those poor schmucks down there cannot get an immigration visa into the United States and go to Hollywood like I did. So I'm going to bring Hollywood to them and I'll show them how they can become great scribes and capture their their music and their art down there for hundreds of years to come, whether it be indigenous tribal music, whether it be Latin culture, whether it be other countries that have inroad to Mexico to do that, um, whether it be Caribbean, reggae, whatever form it is, come in, record, capture your art, right? Let's not lose this stuff. I, from a, I come from a country where the indigenous tribes in Australia, the Aboriginals, don't even know the art of writing. They don't have, that's not part of their culture. They don't scribe. They don't write anything. They don't have a written language. Their history and their culture is handed down from generation to generation through stories, folklore, stories told to the kids who then tell it to the kids. Well, okay, but it gets messed up all the time and you have to be extremely accurate when it comes to history but not when you're recording it or when you're videoing it or you're photographing it, right? It is what it is. I can bring that here. I have a role to play. And at the age of 57, to find yourself like a 20-year-old kid, fresh out of college, with a new career, with a new role to play in a country that wants you there, that isn't going to kill you, that will give you health care if you need it, that will support you and that you don't have to sell your soul out to be a part of. I, I don't get why people don't embrace this, but I mean, that's me, but I'm the contrarian apparently. <laughs> well, I'm going to back your bus up just a little bit there to just go back to healthcare for a moment mm -hmm. because one of the bandwagons that I have been on with my friend, we're doing a gray ruckus kind of thing is, you know, at that point in time when it, however many, decades ago it was that people started outliving that 65 year 
age span or whatever. If you outlive the, the age span or the age that they expected you to live, um, you were probably not well. So we became a model of uh, how do we deal with your cancer? How do we deal with your diabetes? How do we deal with your heart disease? But more and more, I believe, we are outliving those norms. And so they need to start looking at keeping people healthy so, so they don't go into that illness thing. And then having in Canada, you wait for two years to get anything down the States, you pay an arm and a leg to be dealt with. Um, so really looking at it instead of a, an illness model, looking at it as a wellness model. Um, and I think that's one change that should be made along there too. So uh, it, it, it's true. Uh, you know, I have a personal trainer here in a gym mm-hmm. I'm still doing rehabilitation on my shoulder, but that's fine. Um, but, I, you know, it's a fitness regime. And every time I, I, I listen to people in the health and fitness industry, they'll tell you something really simple about losing weight. We'll use that as a standard practice. 80% of it is what you eat. 20% of it is the gym. Okay. So when I go to the supermarket and I pick something off the shelf and I look at the ingredients, why is it that the first half of that is chemicals I can't even pronounce, that I don't know what they are, uh, before I actually get to the, you know, get past the high fructose corn syrup and all that stuff, and I get to the actual ingredient. But that's what I'm putting in my body. And then the next thing, you know, I go to, a, if, if, let's say I want to go to a farmer's market or to a grower to, a, you know, buy it from directly from the farm. Well, that farm had to buy their seeds that were organically and, and, you know, chemically treated by Monsanto or, you know, technically DNA edited. Well, I used to work in biotechnology, so I know what that industry looks like. Um, I don't want to eat that. That's just built for, we have a population of 8.1 billion people on this planet. We cannot feed them. That's the problem. The 27% of our above ground non-seafaring land goes to agriculture. And as a result, that we create all of these huge problems trying to deal with this massive population. And if you were to listen to the news media, they'll tell you, oh, climate change this or climate change that. If you actually do the graphs and you look at population density of growth based on uh, charting it over time and you overlay CO2 emissions, they parallel. They're exactly the same. In the last 100 years, when I was born, the day I was born, the population on planet Earth was 3.8 billion. Today, it's over eight. It's more than doubled since the day I was born. That has never happened in history. If you go back thousands and thousands of years, the population was fairly flat. It didn't go up. It didn't go down. But in 100 years of our wonderful technologies and building all this agronomics and building all of these things, we have more than doubled population. And yet I also, so I'm one of these stats nerds, so I'm sorry to be with this, but I was watching some guys in Florida who did a study on life expectancy. Again, I'll go back to that number. And they had actually looked all the way back in time to what life expectancy was in 1902. It's exactly the same as it is today. It's 75.3 years. And I was like, I was floored. I'm like, and then I went back 20 years, I went back to an old interview I saw on TV from the Phil Donahue show, if you ever remember that, 1980. Gentleman who I respect a lot by the name of Doug Casey, he was being interviewed and he had made all these predictions of what the world was going to look like 20 years later. 90% he got right. 
but he was talking about the cost of healthcare. And I went back and looked at what was the average cost per person of healthcare spend. It has gone up 14 times what it was in 1980 to 2022. 14 times more money is spent in healthcare per person for exactly the same life expectancy. And so if you look at, as you rightly say, you look at quality of life, look at the quality of each one of those years. Well, that's not going to happen very well if you're eating chemicals all day and you have no choice. You need a place that has rejected those principles that farmers can actually make a living and they actually do farm to table, right? Real stuff. Um, that's what I'm, I love about Latin America. I love about Central America and Mexico particularly is that it embraces that. And it reflects in the fact that everywhere you look down in San Miguel, you see 70 to 80 year old people who are skinny, laughing, socializing, having a good time, not subject to Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever else, but they're living the best years of their life. And that's all I would want. Um, his, I had a chat with a guy who lives in a town called Ahihik, which is on the north shore of Lake Chapala, south of Guadalajara. He's 76. He, he and I have, we're friends and his journey and my journey are very different, but very much the same in some cases. He, he did some crazy things just like I did and we ended up in similar places, but he's 20 years ahead of me. And uh, his name's Jerry and I was just talking to him about this. And I said, you know, w tell me, what do you see going forward, you know, in your life? Cause his wife uh, has back uh, pain issues and, there's a whole bunch of things, but you know, he gets really good quality care in, in Mexico. And he said, well, we did some studies looking at nursing homes and I like, yeah, I had to put my mom in a nursing home. I know what that was like. It's disgusting and horrible. And, and yeah, they tried to take her house to pay for it all and everything. And, and, you know, that seems like a common thing, which it certainly is in the States. And he goes, Oh, not here. Well, like, what do you mean? You can get a private room in this nursing home and he showed me some videos of it. It's beautiful. In Mexico, 1200 a month. That's it. I did the exact same calculation in Arizona, $19,000 a month. Okay. Um, this is <laughs> Sign me up. Send me to the nursing home right now. <laughs> right on, right on. I'll, take, I'll take the mezcal and tacos any day. You know, um, no, our society, is just making bank on people dying and it's a disgusting reflection on our humanity. And the reaction, the reality is I can't change city hall, right? I can't tell federal government what to do. I can yell and scream at the TV because my guys are not elected or they're not in power or they are in power or whatever. I can be that political, you know, wave the flag kind of guy. I ain't going to change squat. I, if I don't, if I sit still, I'm going to die a miserable and pain, and painful death, and I'm going to run out of money. I'm not sitting still. <laughs> Who would want to sign up for that? So yeah, uh, that's, oh. again, call me a contrarian, right? <laughs> According to my mother, if you sit still, you just get brought across the beam, anyways. So there you go. There you go. Um, I think we could go on with this for a while. One thing I did want to ask you about, which is totally unrelated, but you seem to have a lot of experience in, that I think a lot of boomers puzzle over, is cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Is there a crypto one hundred and one explanation you could give? 
Kind of. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tell you a story because it makes it easy to work out. All right. People don't tell this story when it comes to cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is money, right? As, and you think money is what we would call a protocol. Back in the 1200s, I think it was, 1100s, um, in Venice, Italy, there was a little corner of Venice, which I have been grateful to actually visit. It was an amazing experience. And it was a place called the Carneggio. And Carneggio was also known as the Jewish ghetto. Now, back in the day when the Roman uh, Catholic, shall we say, uh, ideology ran Italy and its governance, uh, when Florence was the power and, and all of that, there was a law that said that uh, in Italy, you may not lend money to people and charge interest. Well, Venice back in those days was a hub of the Mediterranean, this wealthy palatial place, you know, think Marco Polo, big castles, you know, you ever been to Italy, you know what I mean, right? But the problem is they couldn't feed their people because the farmers who were on the mainland who farmed all the produce couldn't afford to buy seed. And the only way they could get money to buy seed was they had to borrow it. Well, it's interesting that they couldn't borrow it from their local people. There was no such thing as a bank. Bank had not been invented yet. But it so happened that on the banks of Venice, this stood this little town called in the Carneggio, this little Jewish ghetto. And the Jewish people had said, well, you know, you guys who like the New Testament, we're not, not on board with that. We're kind of Old Testament folks, and there's nothing in there that says that we can't charge interest, reasonable interest, to a Gentile. So you guys who need seed, come over here, we'll give you money, you pay us interest, and we'll create this thing that will take over what they had, pawnbroker shops back there. They had one that was... Signs were in black, one signs were in red, one signs were in green, which goes to our terms of in the black, in the red, in the green. This is where it came from. It all originated in Venice, and Venice and the Jewish ghetto invented the world of investment banking. And as a result, our society grew from a society that struggled to a society that thrived because of access to capital. Well, back in those days, those laws were very simple. You could charge reasonable interest and eventually the Romans realized that they couldn't advance the society without becoming, without legalizing lending. And hundreds of years later, they did. But meanwhile, this is why banks existed and how they started. Well, what happened is we, we created this world where money um, as a, a form of currency, as a, as a, rec a recognition of value. Um, you could say, well, what's a, what's a bucket of tomatoes worth? Well, you, you put a number on that. That's money. Um, and it's a perceived number. It's like, well, it's basically what you and I would pay for it, right? Well, if I've got a, I need a bucket of tomatoes, but I've got a bucket of potatoes, what would you give me for the potatoes? Well, you put a number on that. Now we have a, an equivalence of exchange, a basis. Well, that was a, a great with money when it used to be tied to something stable and there was a stable supply of it, gold, for the most part. In 1971, uh, President Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard temporarily, by the way, and for the last 50 years, they never put us back on it. And what ended up happening was that banks could make up what money was without with abandon. They could print it when they wanted. They could. There was nothing tying it to anything of substance. 
And I, and I equate to people, if I was going to build a building and I measured a wall and I measure in inches, the only way that I could ever engineer a successful building is that the inches are stable measurements. They never vary. Money is not like that. You can't measure something of value in money because it changes all the time. The exchange rate between Canada and US fluctuates. The value of a US dollar fluctuates. You cannot engineer anything that fluctuates, period. You can't build a building, a bridge, anything with, on a measurement scale that fluctuates. And we have lost the plot because we print money with abandon. That means that we need something that is, is hardened and has a fixed supply and a stable measurement. And in the 21st century, we have this thing called computers. And we have this concept of mathematics. You can't argue math. And by using those techniques, we can recreate money in a form that is stable, fixed, and something predictable so that you and I don't have to worry about what the exchange rate is every day. And we can, we don't have to worry that our government is printing money that we can never pay back and that our, our future and our debt is going to be, is going to go down the toilet because we can never ever afford to, you know, and we, we, we live in these extreme booms and bust cycles because of this artificial fixation we've got about wealth, which means the service serves no one. Because our money can be manipulated. That's why cryptocurrency, or particularly Bitcoin, is a big deal because it's immutable. It can't be manipulated. You can't have more than 21 million Bitcoins. So the value goes up and down because it's a scarce resource. One day it's worth less than it is the next day because people perceive it has value. That's what it is. Here's the problem. We humans are flawed individuals. We, we are flawed with the, these genetic dysfunctional things like greed, fear of missing out, envy. And that's why people buy big Ferraris and big homes that they can't afford to impress people they don't know, right? This is our flawed psychology. When you take that organic flawed nature and you mix it with mathematics, a lot of humans don't like that, particularly guys who have been manipulating the numbers for years, the the Wall Street barons, the banking cartels, they don't want something they can't manipulate. So they reject it outright. So they'll go to the media and spin these stories like, oh, it's nerd money, it's not real, and you can't invest in vapor and all this stuff. Meanwhile, they're printing money with no backing. So they're the exact hip, 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 hypocrisy of of what they're saying is 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 what they're, what they're talking about on the media. And the Bitcoin people, well, they're these young wide-eyed ideologists, you know, with hope, with a future that's far longer than ours will be. And they don't want this future that, you know, they see the okay boomer crowd. You know, they don't see, they think that we created this mess in the 70s when we went off the gold standard and their future is unpredictable and their future is going to be a world of booms and busts and that the generation, the, the Gen Zs or whatever they, they are currently, will not be as wealthy as the predecessor. And there's a lot of historical precedents in this. Have you ever studied the work of, um, uh, you ever read The Fourth Turning or anything like that, and you study cycles of 80-year cycles, average lifespan cycles broken into 20-year increments, you see repeating patterns that go back over and over again. It follows our psychology as a, as a species. And 
what ends up happening is that we we look forward and think that our our kids are going to have it tougher than we are and we wouldn't want that on them but meanwhile we're willing to listen to Jamie Dimon and all the guys on Wall Street tell us what money is and they're just manipulating it and that's why the 1%, 99% and all that you know stuff goes on and yet we're sitting here watching the TV nodding our heads going yeah that makes me feel good or yeah that makes me feel bad it's like no forget feeling use your brain they're lying to you. The reality is that your money is disappearing every single day. If you think the government is telling you inflation is 9%, it's not. It's closer to 20. You and I know that because we go to the supermarket every day or we fill our tank up with gas. Why is that? Well, because they're manipulating the numbers. Our, gen- our next generation doesn't want them to have the power to do that. And cryptocurrency gives them that solid math-based structure. But the exact same human flaws of greed, fear of missing out, envy, and so on, that created Wall Street and created the robber barons of the of the past, that created a manipulation on a system to benefit the few uh, at the expense of the majority, are also running the crypto business. And unless you go into that world knowing that this beautiful thing built out of ideology of cryptography and math and and good heartfelt people with good intention have been taken over by the very same Wall Street crowd. It's like when, I mean, I bought Bitcoin back in 2011 when it was seven bucks each, a lot of it. I sold it in 2018 when I saw psychology and people exhibiting these behaviors knowing that it was not going to end well. I made 1,800 times my investment. I walked away very, very wealthy. But if anybody comes to me t- today and says, should I buy cryptocurrency, my, uh, my response to that is, what's your faith in humanity like? Do you think that all of these things can be overcome, all of these psychological flaws can be overcome because it doesn't matter what the scale of measurement of value is, whether it's a Bitcoin, a euro, a dollar, a peso, if there are human beings manipulating that, your investment into those things is a tacit uh, support of flaws of humanity. And I'm not saying you should give up, be a hippie, wear Birkenstocks and be, you know, go and live in a commune, but I'm saying you need to get real that what everybody is telling you and what the, you know, the, the flashing blinking lights of distraction are going on about us, that you have to see through that. And we have the responsibility on ourselves to do our research and to go into something with eyes wide open. You don't have to go stupid like me and go and travel to Italy and stand in that town square like I did. You don't have to be that idiot, but at least you don't have to also, everything that you hear about you, you have to be able to, cross-check it knowing yourself, right? Knowing your human flaws, knowing, you know, people want you to spend your money when, when you shouldn't and take your money from you. Be damn careful about it. That's all I can say. So it sounds like it's not just a matter of looking at what's going on with the global economy saying, oh, you know, like crypto is just plummeting buy low because it's going to go up again. You really have to look at a a bigger picture than just market trends and and hoping for the best on those market trends. 
Yeah, um, be an investor, don't be a speculator. Look at what it is. What does it serve? What does it produce? Is it a project that has benefit to humanity? If it is and you believe in it, then invest. Don't speculate, invest. Like, I support this project because it will allow people in Ghana to, to trade and, and eat and, and, you know, have a future. Okay, invest in that if that's what you believe in. If you're looking at buying it because some idiot told you, oh, it's cheap right now, buy it because it's going to go up, well, that's called a speculation. Uh, if you're that guy, go and spend your time in the casino on the blackjack table because that's a speculation. You're going to lose to the house. I guarantee you that. So don't speculate. Invest. And invest requires you to have a longer-term position, five-year horizons, and it means that you need to research what you're buying and look at what it gives you. Um, I, I've told so many of my daughter's graduating class, I was talking to people about this. I said, there's one thing in life you can always guarantee that the rich don't have jobs, right? The rich don't sell their time by the hour. They buy assets and they live off the dividends of the assets. There is nothing stopping anybody doing that right now. You can buy some rental real estate, you can buy a vending machine, you can buy dividend stocks, whatever it is, and you can live off the assets if you have enough of them. That requires you to invest in the asset for the long term. That's what rich people do. Poor people gamble and speculate. Poor people go into something because their brother-in-law told them they should. Right? That's just how it is. That's why 1% owns the 50% of the world's wealth because the other 99% gave it to them willingly. <laughs> so cryptos should be, look, it's important, right? We have flaws in our social structure and our economics. We have flaws in the way our world works. We don't take enough responsibility. It's gotten to the peak where the every child wins a prize mentality came about. Just show up, you'll do well, right? No, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Participation like, prizes. <laughs> yeah, no, do your research and, and, and invest in something you believe in and that's how you become wealthy. It doesn't, you don't get it because you showed up. You don't get it because you went to Coinbase and bought something at this price and no, you invest in something you believe in and that's that's what I did and that, and it worked out great for me as, as how I've, done all these things in my life. I didn't ever speculate because life's too short. I usually try to wrap with sort of, do you have any nuggets? And I think you've just given us a really big one. That's great. Now you also have a podcast. Is that correct? Yeah. People aren't sick and tired of me talking here. <laughs> What's they, it called? It's called the unconstrained podcast. And it's over at my website, be unconstrained.com. Uh, they welcome to go out there and, lap it up. Uh, I do it every week and I just basically, uh, you know what, what it was? Here's a funny thing. I started it about three years ago because I realized my daughter who was graduating college didn't want to listen to dad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, right. Um, so I uh, said, okay, tell you what, all of her friends want me to tell them about all this stuff. So I'm not going to sit down with them one by one. This can take forever. I'll do a podcast and I'll put this is Miles telling about life uh, because they were all confused about why I didn't have to have a job and why I could just travel around the world. And they liked the end result. They didn't, they didn't want to hear about how to get there. But they liked the end result. But I said, listen, I'll lay it out. So my goal originally was to do like 10 
30 minute or 60 minute episodes sort of laying out a foundational methodology that you could use. 150 episodes later, I'm still doing it. Um, and so that's what I do. The Unconstrained Podcast is kind of a, it's kind of like the, it's like a lecture series of on life from an idiot that lives a weird life. And that's kind of what it is. <laughs> and I speak to other idiots sometimes. but you Well, know. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like uh, it's a life that a lot of people would, uh, would love to embrace as well. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, the other thing I would say is it's not, it's not just for the youngsters. It's for anybody because you might relate to a lot of the things that I've experienced. Maybe you don't. Or maybe you also need somebody to tell you that it ain't over yet. You've got a whole new chapter ahead of you and you need to start to let's start getting real here because you want the journey is the reward. Um, that's what you want. You want to have a journey and you've got to be questing to something. If you're not doing that and you stay still, you'll be a victim and you don't want that. There we go. Okay, that's it. I think that's a really good place to sort of begin the wrap. Um, I always put links in the show notes, so I'll link to both your website and your uh, podcast. That's great. Uh, yeah, I did check out the podcast this past week, so it's good, good fun. Cool. Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. If you're listening at twoboomerwomen.com, just scroll to the bottom of the page and leave comments there. We can be found at Apple, Spotify, and now on Samsung Free. Um, most places a person would listen to podcasts. Feel free to leave comments there and leave stars and reviews. They help us grow. Before you go, hit the subscribe or follow button, and you'll be notified about future interviews with more of my great guests. Um, and share this episode with a friend or two who you know would consider making the future an adventure. And then start, start tossing ideas around. And I know my friend Judith is going to be messaging me within hours of this episode going live. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, there's an application form at the website. Miles Wakeham, thank you so much for being my guest today and probably poking the bear a bit, which is great. Hopefully some of our listeners at least will start considering some grand adventures. Wonderful. That's all we can do, right? That's right. That's great. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the week.